Today's reading is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. So I want to begin this morning by reading a statement. Not going to be extemporaneous. I'm actually reading this. And here's the statement. We are hardwired with it at birth. All of us. No exceptions. It's natural, but yet it's destructive. It's not an outside enemy. It's a necessary evil that is internal to our human disposition. What makes it insidious is that it seems necessary, and it is. Without it, we can't survive, but with it, we carry the seeds of our own misery and destruction, harmful to us, and to others. We are, at one and the same time, completely aware of it, and unaware of it, and absolutely overwhelmed by its presence. It is the most basic of all realities. It is the self, or as Freud and other Psychologists would say the id. When it's managed well, it's delightful. But when it's mismanaged, it is obnoxious and repulsive to others and even to the self. Paul names this self as selfish ambition, and vain conceit. And when he names it that way, he makes an extremely counter-cultural statement. As I mentioned last week, his entire first century world said the exact opposite. In order to be thoroughly human, you didn't want to be overly humble. 
whether it was Cicero or any of the Roman philosophers, you found self at the center. As a matter of fact, that is a human condition that has been throughout history. There was a great philosopher one time. His name was Rene Rousseau. He said this, get these words. This is great in a bad way. (laughs) He said, I rejoice in myself. My consolations lie in my self-esteem. If there were a single enlightened government in Europe, it would erect statues to me. Seriously. The dude just owned it, right? (laughs) He told it like it was, that was him. He's not the only one. This might have been a humorous comment or it might have been a serious comment, but on one occasion when Oscar Wilde, the famous author, was traveling internationally and he came back into the United States and like all of us had to go through customs, they asked him if he had anything to declare and he said, only my own genius. That's it. Only my own genius. Now, I have no, I, I, you know, I have no idea whether he's saying that jest or not. And I would admit that he was his own kind of genius. But even to say it is to suggest I'm really self-satisfied. It's really all about me. And we look at those statements and we say, really? Would people really say that? And then we say, but have I said that? To myself? Have I said to myself, the most important thing in my life is my own self-esteem? My own self-gratification? Well, maybe without words, we have. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Nothing. And He says it for a lot of reasons. I'm just going to name four that I think he must have been referring to. Surely three, and the fourth is maybe more me. The first, selfish ambition and vain conceit destroys relationships. You know, friendship is based on mutual giving. It goes both ways in order for a good friendship to exist. However, we have to acknowledge that our drive for deep friendship often is the result of selfish motivation. It's for me. That's why I want you as a friend. At the same time, when we acknowledge our selfish motivation in friendships, we realize that for friendship to be meaningful, it must be for both, right? Here's another thing about friendship that relates to selfish ambition and vain conceit. When you ask for too much from a friend or a spouse, or a significant other. You do a lot of things. One, you may create an unhealthy dependency. And two, 
you might exhaust the other because the other will never be enough for you. And for the most part, you're motivated to exhaust the other because of self. You want more of them for you. So that's why selfish ambition and vain conceit can destroy a relationship. Second thing that selfish ambition and vain conceit can do, and this is definitely Paul, he would say selfish ambition and vain conceit can destroy a church. I know, Paul would say, I've been there and watched it happen. I've established churches all over Asia Minor and I've written back to them because of this very problem. And Philippians, you have this problem on your hands. You're having difficulty with unity in the body of Christ and it's based on selfish ambition and vain conceit. Churches are supposed to be, we all know, a place for mutual support. We're called together to serve one another in a common cause. Unified by a core set of beliefs that energize our lives. We're nurtured by the people around us who encourage us and challenge us. But the insidious nature of self is that our personal ambitions can eclipse the very thing we believe in. So before long, the thing that motivated us, the deep belief in Jesus Christ, is literally eclipsed by our selfish ambition. Paul understood this well. You've also heard this play out before in public view. I read last week of a church I'd heard about years ago in Dallas, Texas, that uh, fell into a dispute, and the dispute was so significant that the church was splitting apart, and so they decided to take their dispute to the secular courts, obviously ignoring the scripture concerning disputes within the church. They took it to the courts, and this judge in Texas was wise enough to say, This has nothing to do with me or the courts. Why? Because you ought to settle your disputes outside the court. Wow, talk about a slap in the face. They told them to go back to their adjudicatory body, the denomination, and settle the dispute. The paper had a heyday with this. As a matter of fact, an investigative reporter who was doing a lot of... uh, public relations for the church in a negative way. (laughs) Investigated a little further, and you know what he found out? He found out that the original cause of the dispute was that an elder in the church at a church dinner was given less portion than a young man, child, who was next to him. Can you imagine how foolish the rest of us, I wasn't there, would feel if that church was determined to have split originally over a dispute about how big the helping was at a church dinner? Oh, but churches split over other things too, don't they? I mean, weird stuff like disputes over a building. 
whether to build or not to build, what kind of carpet to have or not to have, what kind of music you like or don't like. The list goes on and on and on. I think Paul, for the most part, would address almost all of our disputes in church and say, it's not really about the issue. It's about you. It's about selfish ambition and vain conceit. So selfish ambition and vain conceit destroys relationships. It destroys churches. And here's my addition. I don't apologize for it because we're supposed to make application outside the principle. Paul doesn't address everything, but he does address divine principles. I think it's also true that vain conceit and selfish ambition destroy communities, big communities like towns and cities and states and nations. I don't need to tell you that political unrest and anger are at an all-time high. I say that based on my experience. I'm 60. I can never remember a time, not even in the 60s, that it was this bad. Everyone is looking to advance their own agenda, and that's all they care about. And I don't see anything other than argumentation. And I never see true listening. Maybe I'm missing it. But I don't see it. That kind of selfish ambition and vain conceit, no matter how righteous you feel, is the kind of thing that will destroy a society, a community. And we need to be careful as the people of God not to participate in the same way. So the fourth thing, which is not just my suggestion, I think Paul would have agreed with the third thing that I mentioned, but the fourth thing, it comes from Scripture itself as well. Selfish ambition and vain conceit destroy the person. I mean, the person who's full of selfish ambition and vain conceit, it internally destroys that person. There's nothing wrong with self, so to speak. After all, as we said at the beginning, it's, it's kind of central to who we are. It's important. It's the foundation of our reality as human beings. Yet the seeds of our own self-destruction lie within the self itself. Preoccupation with ambition, vain conceit, is like a cancer for the soul. I'm no physician, but I know enough about cancer to know that it doesn't just come from the outside. 
the insidious nature of cancer is it starts within. Of course, there's other reasons, but it starts within. It's your cells multiplying in such a way that it destroys you. And selfish ambition and vain conceit are exactly that. They're an internal reality that is part of us. Last week we talked about Paul and how he was describing the enemy as the principalities and the powers. This week Paul is describing the enemy as us. He's saying we can be this cancer that destroys ourselves. That's why he said, don't do it. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. So what's the solution? I always like a solution that doesn't say just stop it, right? Because <laughs> I'm not very good at it if I just have to stop it. Paul says, here's the solution. I'm not saying it's easy, but here's the solution. <laughs> Look at Jesus. Be like Jesus. Jesus is the one who didn't consider equality as something to grasp, as the text so famously says. He did not consider his status as a license for self-satisfaction. Imagine how self-satisfied Jesus could have been with himself. He was God. And then think of the opposite of that. Instead of being self-satisfied as God incarnate, he used his status He used all his gifts. He used all his divinity to enter humanity. He became human without relinquishing a single bit of his deity. He became thoroughly human. He divested himself of the privilege. Now, it's easy to look at something like this and move in a direction of well, what I'll call false humility. The false humility would be suggesting that everybody is the same status as you and you're really not worthy of anything. That would be false humility. Or put it another way, let me use this analogy. I had the privilege since 1987 and up until this day of being a father. One of the greatest honors of my life. But never, I don't think, did I ever relinquish my identity or status as a father in order to serve my children. That is really counterproductive. As a father, who was the authority figure in their life, with all the authority that I had, I emptied myself of self-interest and served them. But they always knew I was their father. And it meant something in terms of my status. No analogy is perfect, but at least that one helps me with Jesus. 
It helps me when I understand Jesus to be the person who never relinquished his divine authority, but used his divine authority to serve. It reminds me that the model is not false humility and pretending not to be who I am, but being who I am and serving with what God has given me. There's a a book that our uh, youth are reading right now um, in the high school youth group. It's written by a man named Dane Ortland, and it's uh, entitled Gentle and Lowly. Kind of figure who it's about, right? It's not about him, it's about Jesus. He's a pastor of a Presbyterian church in Illinois. And he's written this book and and the youth are reading it, discussing it. I started reading it and I was amazed by it. And I know why this happened now. This is that somebody, apparently who had plenty of money, said this book is so good that I want everybody to have a copy of it who wants one, and they can have it for free. Hundreds and thousands of these books are being sent to people who request it for free. We get two boxes of these books back there. You want one? It's yours. What happens in this book I think is what I just described. This book says that Jesus, who was the majestic son of God, did not relinquish his majesty. And the book does not diminish his majesty. But with the majesty that was Jesus, he was gentle and lowly. And there's no better way to understand who Jesus was than those two words, says the author. Gentle and lowly. You know why it's so powerful? The notion of gentle and lowly? Because he's God. It wouldn't be so powerful to say gentle and lowly if the person was way beneath you, didn't have the gifts that he needed to do the work that he was called to do. We're talking about God here. That's what makes gentle and lowly so powerful. He had it all, and he stooped to be one of us. And of course, that stooping led to his death, death on a cross. That stooping led to him being exalted. And to him eventually being called the name that is above all names. There is some day, it almost seems like it's not going to happen, doesn't it? That every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, the one who was majestic and at the same time gentle and lowly. So what does this look like for us? I mean, it's one thing to make it sound so great. It's another thing to ask, now what? 
what do I do? Well, I, I want to begin with just two questions, and then I have a few suggestions. The first question is this. What do you think the people of our community, or any community, see when they look at the church? Do they see a group of people who's overwhelmingly critical of others? Do they see a group of people who are divided over trivial differences? Do they see a group of people who fight better than anybody else? Do they see a group of people who condemn? That's their, that's their game. Is that what people see when they look at the church? Second question is an internal question, a, an inventory of sorts. What do you think people see when they look at you? Do they see people who are seeking their own satisfaction, selfish ambition, and vain conceit? Or do they see people whose primary purpose it is to love God and serve others? Is that what they see when they see you? I hope so. I know we're not perfect. But my, I hope so. So how do we change? If, if the problem is us and we're not going away, if the problem is self and self is part of our identity, what do we do? How do we change? Just four suggestions. Make your own. Suggestion number one is you confess. That's why public confession is so important. That's why personal confession is so important. I read a poem this week that did a good job of summarizing it. It's by a poet named Robert Raines. And he entitled the poem, I'm Like James and John. And it came out of Matthew 20 where James and John's mother goes to Jesus and says, what about my boys? Can they be ranked up above everybody else in the kingdom of God? What's it going to take? Now, that in and of itself doesn't indict James or John, right? Until you keep reading. When you keep reading, the other disciples got mad at James and John for asking this, which means mommy asked it for him. It was their question. So, Robert Rainer says this, Rain says this, I'm like James and John. Lord, I size up other people in terms of what they can do for me, how they can further my program, feed my ego, satisfy my needs, give me strategic advantage. I exploit people ostensibly for your sake, but really for my own sake. Lord, I turn to you to get the inside track and obtain special favors, your direction for my schemes, your power for my projects, your sanction for my ambitions, your blank checks 
for whatever I want. Lord, I'm like James and John. Um, if you can't read that confession poem, you got some work to do. Because we're all like them. In one way or another, we're all like them. Let's admit it. I would add one other further thing about confession. Confession is powerful when it's private. It's powerful when it's corporate. But it's also powerful when it's historic. And what I mean by that is admitting who the church has often been. I'll never forget, it was early in my time at this church where I was invited to be on a panel with other religious leaders at IU. One of the questions came up and was directed towards me about the outrageous things that the church has done. And they said, how do you respond to that? What do you think? And I said, I confess. They are me, and I am them. I can't pretend like it's not me. I can't pretend like I shouldn't take any responsibility because it happened back there. I can't pretend more specifically to suggest that since I'm not a slave owner, I shouldn't confess for my church being full of them in a day that I didn't yet exist. Our confession has to be broad, folks, in order to be real. So first, we confess. Second, we listen. We listen to other people's stories. When we constructed this four-part series on racial equality, we did so very specifically so as not to create debate, not to argue about particular theories, not to be political, but to ask a question. How can we enter into the life, the story of another, and understand? That's where true understanding comes. I would encourage you to be here this afternoon at 3 o'clock when Marietta Simpson gives her story. You know and love her, most of you. Stories like that are powerful. Why? Because they dismantle our arguments. They break down our objections. And we enter into the life of another. We put, shall we say, their shoes on. And we walk in their place. And then, just a little bit, not as much as we should, because we're not able to, then, just a little bit, we understand vicariously. We don't project and conjecture and spin theories. 
We seek to understand. So we listen. First, we confess. Second, we listen. And third, we look. We look around us to find those who are sitting alone, those who are lonely, those who know no one, those who are disenfranchised. I've said it before, but if there's one thing I could find delight in more than anything else on a Sunday morning, it would be for every one of us to be looking around for somebody we don't know. Somebody you don't know. And don't say to me what I often want to say to myself. Well, I don't want to embarrass myself by saying, hello, are you new here? You know what? You're making it all about you if you're asking that question. Right? Fooey on your embarrassment. Put yourself out there. Say hello to someone you don't know. And especially to someone who looks alone. That's the opposite of vain conceit and selfish ambition. Final thing is to serve. Confess, listen, look, and serve. Back in the 90s, which was, I understand for many of you, a long time ago, (laughs) there was a really popular uh, book that came out. It was uh, done by a church author that described spiritual gifts and how to use your spiritual gifts. And the baseline for the book was basically this. Don't do what you're not gifted to do. You'll just make a mess of things, right? Which is true. The other part of it was follow your passions, find out what your passions are, and then pursue your passions because that's how God gifted you. Yeah, sort of true. You know what happened, though? At least in my opinion with the book. Before long, the entire notion of spiritual gifts was about the person who had it. It's all about me. It's what I want to do. It's what I'm gifted at. And it became less about service. So if you look at the spiritual gifts story in 1 Corinthians 12 or in Romans 12, what you will find is that the spiritual gifts exist for one purpose and one purpose only, for others It's really not about you. You will find yourself in service to others with the gift that God has given you. So I end with that admonition. Do you want to avoid vain conceit? Then confess. Listen. And serve others. You can find the need. If you have the heart for it. And then. Just a wee little bit. You'll be like Jesus. Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you for the challenge of your word. Sometimes it just kind of knocks us sideways. Paul didn't dance around it. He just told the church at Philippi they had a problem. And if we take the word of God seriously, we've got to pick it up and use it as a mirror and ask what our problem is. And I think, Lord, in this setting, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you have revealed what individuals in a church like ours struggles with. So give us the grace to confess. Give us the ability, Lord, the ability to listen. Help us to look for the other, to find the need, and then to serve. And if we do that, we will find ourselves in you. In the name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.